Welcome to the second of our five special episodes discussing emerging insights at the midway point of the Resilient Leadership Project. I'm Seth Schultz, Executive Director of the Resilient Shift. On this episode, you'll hear some insights that relate to the theme we're calling as the wave starts to break, reflections and lessons from our participants on the early phase of responding to a crisis based on their experience during this pandemic. Discussing these insights with me as always is Peter Willis. Peter, uh, welcome back. We're, uh, we're talking about our next midterm discussion item here or topic. Yes. What's, what's, on the, what's on the menu? So on the menu in this little discussion is that phase of crisis, we're calling it as the wave starts to break. So that early phase before maybe a crisis has actually hit, but you realize, uh-oh, something is, something is starting to happen or is about to happen. And then the first few, in this case of the pandemic, the first few days, maybe even a week or two, when everybody's scrambling to work out how on earth are we going to cope with this? And you can see that it's, there's more coming. So it's the full wave hasn't arrived, but you're getting into the So crisis. maybe another analogy here is like a, a tsunami and the water's being sucked out the sea, but you can see the giant wave crashing towards shore. Is that, is that fair? <laughs> That, I'm not sure about fair, but it's a good, um, uh, yeah, yeah, I think that's a dramatic acceleration of my rather gentle metaphor here. Uh, yes. So I think we're on the same page. None of this has been too gentle, has it? No, it hasn't. You're, you're quite right. So let's, let's go with the tsunami. So here the water is sucking out. And well, actually, so, so my first point, which has come up in one or two of the conversations, which I think is a really interesting and subtle learning, is I, I call it... Uh, paying attention to weak and early signals. And you know how this is, even in your own personal life, with your body, your physical self, I mean, you, I'm sure it applies to your mental and emotional self as well, but let's just stick with your, your physical health. If you're really attentive, you pick up the very earliest symptom that you're beginning to get a cold or a or your stomach isn't right, or something. In other words... Right, you can feel that scratch in the back of your just throat. Just a slight scratch. But if you're paying attention to other stuff, you discount it. You kind of, you give it no particular attention. So it has to get a little stronger before it gets your attention, and so on. I know people who, when they're clearly not well, you ask them, how are they? And you're concerned. And they say, no, no, it's fine. I'm, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be great. And th there's a sense in which that's heroic in a way, but it's also really foolish. It, it seems to me like, no, you're not actually dealing with reality here. And so when a, you're, you're in charge of a system like an organization or a city, and you start getting signals, there were very obvious ones coming out of Wuhan at the beginning of January. Those organizations that are used to being really attentive to the small stuff um, that could turn into big stuff, and they have channels of communication amongst leadership where those kinds of things are taken seriously if they are raised, um, those organizations responded quicker. And as we now know, speed at the beginning translates into huge differences in outcome later on. So the, the particular example I'm thinking of here, um, in fact, there are two. One was Peter Chamley in, uh, in Australasia. He runs Arabs operations there, chairman of Arab Australasia. And he was saying that they had to deal with people, they had a lot of people who wanted to either leave their operations in Australia and New Zealand and go to China for the Chinese New Year, or were going to come back from China to rejoin their families. And they 
had heard about this and were monitoring this pan epidemic rather in Wuhan. And they suddenly had to make decisions about this and they decided to be cautious. She's saying early on, early on. Very, very early on, yeah. And then they, they um, as a whole global group, they flew to, all the, the chairmen from the different regions flew to London for a global board meeting. This was in February. And they had a, a briefing from a very senior epidemiologist. I mean, you know, it's quite something for them to go and find and, and invite a senior epidemiologist to their board meeting. And the thing that Peter took away from this was this man said, this thing is out. And when Peter said that when he heard those words, something clicked for him and he realized that he, he and his region were going to take this seriously. And that meant really conservative approach to travel and so on. And um, the LR group, Elaine Roberts has been talking to me about how they felt very very Lloyd's, glad. That's the Lloyd's. The, sorry, the Lloyd's Register Group. Yes, and she's the chief marketing officer there, based in London. And because they've got quite a lot of operations in China, they were getting early signals through their system that there was this thing going on, which obviously they heard in the news. But they were saying, "No, no, this is getting looking quite serious." So they started to think through the PPE question for the people who were in there various global operations way before many other companies and cities and governments got on that bandwagon. So it's, you could say it's an obvious thing, but from the perspective of, if you think of a leadership team or a leadership group and the 101 things that are always on their agenda whenever they meet, it's very easy to see how these weak signals, early signals might get shoved down the agenda because there's such big, you know, there's what about that merger we're looking at? Or what about this big embarrassment where a senior executive has, has had to resign and so on? I mean, Brexit did that with the UK government, filled their screen with the exclusion of these weak signals. So the big learning here is develop the culture where you validate weak signals. Um, you don't have to go overboard, but you just pay attention. It's fascinating. This is one of the favorite, my favorite topics um, over the last eight weeks that has emerged that you've brought up. And, and I also remember at an earlier point, you providing this comparison to companies who are finding and, and identifying these early and weak signals compared to, to governments. And governments also have embassies in China and spies, as, as you said. And I was just was so struck when you mentioned that. And in general, most, most countries around the world have had a very, very poor and lethargic response to this. And they probably had some of the best intel that there was to have at the time and how in contrast it is to companies. And part of that, you know, I don't, I don't know if I'm reading into this more or not than I should be, but it, you know, companies are so hyper-focused on slight changes to the marketplace, to mm. potential disruptions to supply chains because how interconnected and global they are. They've now realized that if they don't have that quick ability to respond, and to your point, regardless of the type of crisis, whether it's an epidemic or whether it's a cultural crisis or whether it's a crisis of leadership or um, an embarrassment to their brand, it, you know, if you don't get out in front of it and address it quick, it can have massive impacts into your yeah. quarterly earnings and statements. Um, and, and they think about things in three-month chunks. It's that quick. So I was assuming that the companies would be way more finely attuned and have that built-in mechanism. And you're right. Yeah, there's lots of stuff that 
could be crowding that out, but companies are forced to have a kind of a process and a rigor with which to identify, scan the horizons. And then comparing that to cities and governments who have been way more reactive, not proactive. Mm. And if they're kind of going back to your point, uh, just like, you know, the underlying conditions from the last time we spoke and the, and the analogy used to kick this off, which is a personal personal health and well-being. And you've got, I love that, you know, I don't feel well and that's a little achy or what's going on here. Maybe I should take some vitamin C or get some extra sleep today. Whether that turns out to be a full-blown cold or not, you might avoid that by getting some extra sleep versus ignoring it, not getting a lot of sleep and then getting a full-blown cold. So the point I think you've been highlighting and pulling out of these conversations about not just the early warning mechanisms, but also the preparedness and how and what is the culture and mechanisms with which you handle and address those so that they don't become full-blown. They, they remain something that is mitigated in a proactive way. And the differences, we just see them over and over and over, which I think is a very compelling point for any of our listeners about, just like you just said, you don't have to be overblown about how you handle, how you identify and handle those. You just need to have a process with which to identify them and to assess them. Yeah, uh, and, and I think it's a, uh, this for me falls squarely in the zone of leadership and the, the character of leadership, because I think we may have discussed this before. It certainly came up in my conversation with Tom Lewis in New York. This idea that a really good leader is capable of holding in the, at the same moment, a a sort of scanning of risk and a precautionary view of what could go wrong with, on the other hand, a, a drive to look for and grab opportunity. And if you have an imbalance between those, you are either overcautious and conservative and, and you don't free up the energy and the creativity in your teams, or you're saying to people, no, just bring me in the money, bring me in the profits, go get the news articles written by us about us and so on. And you're not spotting that risk that's creeping up or eating away. And yeah. But even to that, Peter, I guess talking about leadership and the balances that we need to hold in our mind, and it's not impossible, it's not incongruous to hold these two different thoughts in balance. But at the same time, even let's say, even if you have an uh, early warning mechanism, and even if you have the right person in the right place who's you know, recognizing something, oh, gosh, I need to do something about this and then balancing these perspectives as you just mentioned. But how do you overcome the inherent structure or organizational culture that may or may not be there? Yeah. So, I mean, what happens there? And, and I could be wrong again. I'm curious to hear from you, but maybe no, this is what's struggling you're, with. You've right? so identified this, they have to deal with it, but that's not how they're set up. So what do they do? You're nudging me into the sort of the, the next step of this question, which is fine that you pay attention to the signal and you do, you've decided to do something about it. But if the way your organization is set up to, to run and to process daily challenges and monthly challenges and so on is through a sort of, no, put it this way, most organizations are set up to run well in what I'd call peacetime. In a crisis, the definition of a crisis is that things get out of order and out of shape very quickly. And what works well in peacetime suddenly is inappropriate in a, in a crisis. And particularly, people who have senior positions, let's say, in an organization have particular skills that have got them there. But those skills may not be necessary or particularly useful in this phase of a crisis. So I think it was very, very instructive to hear in some detail from Barbara Humpton, 
at Siemens US, and also Craig Kesson, the Chief Resilience Officer in Cape Town, both talking about how very early on in the crisis, they realized they needed to set up a networked team to respond to this. Because if they just used the pre-existing organizational boxes, would take way too long and the wrong people would be at the front line because everybody knows in their team who they can trust to be agile and fast and who they can trust to be slower and more maybe inclusive or whatever. So they both set up these networked organizational responses, which they, in subsequent weeks, when I spoke with them about it, they felt it had made a huge difference to the ability of their organization to pivot and respond in an accelerated way because you had the right people who had skills, regardless of their title, sitting in teams where the focus was purely on the pandemic and they weren't sort of having to add this into an agenda that belonged to their normal siloed business operations and so on. So for me, that's a second aspect of this, getting yourself ready for what you've noticed is going to need major attention. And I call it moving beyond the organogram, because the organogram can really bind, I don't know if that's the word you use in the States, but your organizational chart can really freeze your thinking. Now, that's exactly kind of what I meant when I was asking you that, because, yeah, you know, it's, yeah. it's hard. It's hard to move past the organizational structure. Sometimes you don't think about it or give it a lot of credence, but actually how organizations are structured has a lot to do with their ability to move to adapt to interlocate. And these are one of the biggest issues and challenges that we have, particularly in, in the city space that I've worked in for a long time, is how siloed it is. And it's not siloed, you know, because that's such a bad thing in and of itself. It was siloed because there was greater efficiencies in kind of a very specific, narrowed operational standpoint, whether you're talking about buildings or transportation yeah. or parks or waste, that they create their own little organogram within that silo so they can be hyper efficient efficient and delivering what they need to in that area. But over time, what we've known through the city planning, urban climate process is that those silos can be very destructive because they, you're not allowing information or purview into other operations and increasingly urban systems, just like planetary systems and supply chains are all interconnected and you have to have the ability to look across, but it's really difficult when stuff like this happens in a city for them to look past their, as you said, or, or their organogram, their structure to, to deal with this in real time. If you think about it, you never have a department of pandemics, right? You don't have a department of drought. And in the cases like you, you, you do, it's at the federal government and in the U S and we just ignore them. So, you know, great. Yeah. <laughs> I do feel for you. One little twist I want to put on this um, in closing, which is that uh, I think it was Craig Kesson in Cape Town who said to me that in the process of whipping together this spontaneously created networked set of teams to respond to the pandemic, he said to me, you know, it's, it's actually a little bit like being in a startup. And I thought he's absolutely nailed it because in a startup, you have a, a, this big idea of what you want to do. You basically want to sell a million widgets and become famous and rich. But in the process of starting from zero to, to get there, you have to change your mind every day, pretty much, because you're getting new information out of the marketplace and new people arrive to join your team. And, so, and it's, it's a form of chaos, which some people are really gifted at navigating and other people will avoid and they'll go and become bureaucrats. 
because that's just not what they're here for. So if you as a leader as a within a large organization have or can bring close to you from amongst your teams people who have that ability to act really fluidly as if you were in a startup where you throw away what you learn what 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 you agreed yesterday because today requires something better and different and he said it with some pride and excitement because i don't believe he's ever started a small business and wouldn't dream of it but to become to really entrepreneur inside a large organization when the situation absolutely demands it it's quite a skill i was just going to say the same thing it it is quite remarkable and amazing when you can overcome yourself and then not just yourself but the other representatives in your organization can say hey this isn't working and we need to react differently and the speed with which that self reflection that recognition can happen is night and day difference between impacts particularly in something that's moving this quick with so much at stake uh, so I, I think it's a, a remarkable kind of insight and extraction of one type of business, private sector, kind of getting picked up by the public sector and, and what the pros and cons of that are. But something, I mean, oops, uh, yeah, go ahead. No, I just got to say that. I mean, just imagine the recruitment implications of this. Because yeah. if you, if you, I mean, I'm just thinking of the city of Cape Town now, if you know that you're going to face a major crisis every two, three years, let's say, I mean, you know, you and I know with climate change, that's going to be likely and various other things, then you might want to select at least some of your senior executive administrators to have that sort of genetic coding for... Peter, this is just where I was going. It's oh, amazing okay. that you can't know that you said the same thing. It's fascinating because so just similarly, you know, what strikes me is, is not only how to pick up the early signals and the structure and all the things we've been talking about, but who's best place to do that? And increasingly, to your point, things are changing rapidly. And whether it's additional emergencies, and you kind of the point that you made about, you know, who has a center for epidemiology, you know, at the city or company, you don't, unless that's what your company does. But increasingly, there's this bigger, broader issue that is more systemic, that we don't have all of the right people in all the right places now, both in the private sector and or in the public sector. So a couple of examples is, you know, 20 years ago, there wasn't a director of sustainability in cities that didn't exist. But cities, cities had a department of the environment, and that looked after water quality, soil quality, and air, super basic stuff. And then over time, they realized, well, these things, well, there's this issue called sustainability, these things are interlinked, there's bigger problems that we need to address. And now it's very common. In fact, it's, I would say the opposite It's very unusual to find a city now that doesn't have a director of sustainability. And then what happened in the last five years is that most cities um, didn't have a director of, of resilience. And then through some organizations, um, primarily um, 100RC, they've created kind of a similar movement. And now you've got chief resilience officers, CROs, who of which we're talking to. But that notion didn't really exist literally five years ago. And the cities that have those are now seeing the benefits of thinking about holistic thinking and how do you tie this all together. And you're seeing that spread and change. But this, is, this goes on and on. There's now most cities are, didn't have a director of uh, innovation or technology. Now they do, a chief information officer. And you're seeing the same thing on co corporations. Corporations now have chief sustainability officers. And they're also now trying to put people with insights into this on their boards. So I think it's a great analogy. And you're seeing the market in the very broad terms in both the private and the public sector shift to this awakening that we need to have different people in the right places, 
to pick up these early signals, which is very heartening to somebody like me who's seeing the crashing confluences of, of global megatrends like urbanization and climate change and the fourth industrial revolution all happening at the same time, which creates a lot of noise. What do you do? Where do you look? How do you, how do you adapt? So we're, we're seeing this, and I think this is yet another great example of how COVID-19 is really going to accelerate that awakening in terms of having the right people in the right place for the right reasons. Yep. So uh, I suggest we leave it there and we'll move on to our next conversation. It sounds good, Peter. As usual, thanks a lot for all this insight. Uh, my pleasure. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to Peter and I as we discussed some of the emerging insights from the Resilient Leadership Project thus far. If you want to hear more insights and reflections from our midterm review, please listen to the other four episodes that are part of our special five-part series. You can find these episodes and a lot more around emerging insights on our website. Link in the episode notes below. On behalf of the Resilience Shift, this is Seth Schultz. See you soon.